Take your Bibles now and open up to Judges chapter 8. Isn't this crazy, the book of Judges? We have been in the book of Judges now for 17 weeks, and we're only on chapter 8. You who are visiting, like, what's wrong with that guy? You who are from here, like, just wait. You know, it gets worse. But the story of Gideon has really taken us some time to get through. Gideon, of all of the judges in the book of Judges, has given the most amount of verses and chapters. Listen, the most amount of story and detail. His wrestling with his flesh, his wrestling with the call on his life. Some of the judges are called up quickly and they fall and peter out and move on. But we see kind of the backstory of Gideon. And I want to lean into Gideon's life. This may be our last time studying him. I, I foresee two weeks in chapter 8 if I keep talking like this. It's going to take us some time. But I believe there are some leadership lessons that we can learn from the book of, Gideon, from the book of Judges, especially the life of Gideon. And God has preserved this story for us that we might grow in our faith and our hope and our patience and our perseverance. And we need all these things because we're not done running our race. Anybody done running your race? Trick question, don't raise your hand. If you're here, you got a pulse, you got a, a purpose. And your purpose might now be just to stand in the things of God. Having done all, stand. Taking one of these little prayer cards and putting on the full armor of God every single day. These are located on the doors you leave. Put on the armor of God and you're going to stand because if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for everything. And as we find ourselves founded on the principles of God, I believe God wants to do something for us, especially you who are in leadership, especially you who are game changers, you who want to do something with the rest of your life. You want to lead your family. You want to lead your neighborhood. You want to impact your coworkers. You want to have an impact on the next generation. It will not be easy for you. It will come at a cost. We serve a savior who at age 33 in leading and impacting this world was murdered because of it. And Jesus said, don't be surprised if it's tough for you. It was tough for me. Are you greater than me? No, I'm not greater than you. Well, don't be surprised if it's difficult. If things are against you, if there's attacks, spiritual attacks, internal, infernal, incarnal, they're all over the place. So that being said, before we read Judges 8, would you just pray with me one more time? Father, it's in Jesus' name we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for your church, for the mission, for the light, for the salt. We thank you for the past. We thank you for Gideon, the hall of faith, which he's mentioned in. We thank you for all the saints of old, the foundation that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for my friends here this morning, those watching online at home, my friends. Thank you for them. Anoint them and bless them. Stir us up. Even now, cleanse us, Lord, and make our palate, Lord, receptive to what you have. I pray for anointings on me as, Lord, a teacher today, pastor. And I pray, Lord, for ears to be anointed as sheep, Lord and as disciples and apostles. Send us, we pray. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Judges chapter eight, and then if you would, just jump back to the next verse, the verse prior to that. I always do this. I just feel it's necessary to get a little bit of context. It says, and they, the they is the Ephraimites, captured two princes of the Midianites. The Midianites were co-partners with the websites and the flashlights. They're bad guys. 
And there are Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, who? The Ephraimites. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Stop right there, eyes up here. The Ephraimites are now in the battle. They've heard the call. Gideon has caused the 135,000 men to flee. 100,000 have fallen by the sword, but there's still some princes running around and some other people. Gideon only has 300 men. You remember the story. He started with 32,000 and then 20,000 and then 10,000 and then 300. The Lord says, perfect. Now you won't take the glory when I give you the victory. And that's just the case with all of us. The Lord loves to use the weak things. He loves to use the base things. And listen, oftentimes, he has to take us around the block a few times to get some of our own human strengths out of the way. Sometimes he has to take us lower before we can lift us higher. One theologian of late said that God, before he uses a man greatly, often has to hurt a man deeply. And you might be asking yourself, what am I doing? What's going on in my life right now? What's happening here? Why is it hurting? Why this health issue? Why this relationship issue? What's going on? Lord, do you not see what's happening in my life? And Lord says, oh, yeah, I see it. I'm stripping away your strengths. I'm stripping away your resources. So that way, when I use you, when I shine through you, you won't get the glory, but I will. Do you remember this story? God said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a pitcher and a torch and put the torch in the pitcher and a horn, a shofar horn. And you're going to go and you're going to scream at the enemy, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Break the pots, blow the horn, and you'll have the victory. And somebody's writing this down saying, no, wait a minute. What did you say? We're going to blow the horn and scream and break some pots and light's going to shine and we win that way? And Gideon's like, yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, you're crazy. That's crazy. And did you know that God loves to shine his light through broken vessels, through cracked pots, through men and women who are willing to let his light shine through you and through me? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 actually talks about the earthen vessels that are our bodies, that through them, when we're crushed, when we're perplexed, when we're overwhelmed, it's in those moments that the light of Jesus shines most and shines best through you. How many guys love good days where you're on top, you win, hole in one, your balance is balanced, your checkbook, everything's good. How many guys love those days? You love those days? Nobody else in your family loves those days. We see you, we're like, whatever, dude. And everyone's jealous or envious of you or critical. Just the way we are, we're like dogs, man. It's nuts. But listen, I kid you not, when you're having a down day, things aren't going your way. When there's difficulty, when there's pushback, when there's challenges, and you choose to let the sound of God's faith come out of your lips, you choose to sound the horn, you choose to let your light shine, it is in those broken times that God gets the glory. And that the men and women who don't yet know Jesus, they see him in you. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to leak. I don't want it to be hard. And the Lord says, well, when it is, trust me, I'll get the glory. So you who are being broken right now, lean into that. Don't, don't run from that. Trust the Lord. Men and women around you are forging their faith based on your faithfulness to the Lord and his call in your life. 
Gideon's army has dwindled down. And you guys know the story. He blows the trumpet, and we see in chapter 7, the very last parts there, that Gideon then calls his buddies in Manasseh and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali and Ephraim. And everyone runs because 300 people can't really finish it. It needs to be a whole-spectrum deal. And now the Ephraimites show up. And they got the heads of Oreb and Zeb in their hand. Can you imagine the Ephraimites? They heard the whole call. They get the, the princes of Midian in their hands. Now, they've been themselves under oppression for seven years. Wouldn't you think at this point they're going to be super fired up that Gideon's doing stuff? They're now set free and things are moving forward. Wouldn't you think that? Let's read verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, now the men of Ephraim said to him, that's Gideon, why have you done this to us? I've got that circled. By not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites. And they reprimanded him sharply. Let's just, before I keep reading, stop right there. I've heard it said before, and I got to be real careful how I teach this today. I have to be real careful to teach it from both sides. From Gideon's point of view, from the Ephraimites' point of view, from the men of Sukkoth, who we'll see in a minute, the men of Penuel. I have to be real careful not to teach this in an emotional way. I confess that to you because I've been in the ministry long enough where I can get emotional when I see a portion of Scripture like this, where Gideon is doing what God asked him to do. Gideon is growing in the faith that God's asked him to grow in. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, out of the woods comes up, springs up, rises up, critics of Gideon's leadership, critics. Critics of the leadership around him, people who don't know the whole backstory. They don't know what Gideon's been through, and they have questions. And I've heard it said before, and I have to be real careful to say this and harden my own heart, but no good deed goes unpunished. And sometimes when you find yourself reaching out and serving and doing things, criticism rises up, and people around you, they don't know the whole backstory. They don't know your motives. They don't know what's going on, and they have questions, and can you imagine these princes of Oreb and Zeb, their heads, they're headless now, their heads in the Ephraimites come and they say, Gideon, how dare you do this to us? That you didn't call us at the beginning of the battle, but you only called us at the end of the battle. And here's Gideon saying, it sounds like you said, you're mad at me, but you've got the heads of the princes of Gideon, of Midian in your hands. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. Let's read on. I want you to see his logic in this. And I want you to settle into this. I've got to be real careful, as I said, not to get personal. Because this did happen. And it happened for our learning and for our hope. But I want to now focus on Gideon's response. Because Gideon is a master leader here. One of which we could all learn from and humble ourselves. See, Gideon knows that these men don't know the whole backstory. They missed out on the planning meetings, if you could call them that. They missed out on the times where they came together and put together the agenda. Look at what Gideon says in verse 2. He says, so he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian and Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Stop right there, eyes up here. Do you understand what Gideon is doing? Gideon looks at these men. He says, guys, you're from Ephraim. 
Ephraim's big time. You guys got Costco's and Starbucks. Man, I'm from a small town of Manasseh. We've got Otis. That's where I'm from. I'm from Otis. And you guys are big time is what he's saying. Even our gleaning, which is the greatest, is nothing in comparison. Or even our vintage grapes is nothing compared to the gleaning that you guys have. And what you've done, you have the princes of Midian in your hand. Gideon does something here that's masterful. He uses a soft answer to turn away wrath. Have you guys heard this before? He doesn't fall into this. The proverb says in Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it goes on to say, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Wouldn't it be awesome if each and every one of us grew as Gideon, not only obediently doing what God asked us to do, but when misunderstood, when accused, when criticized, instead of criticizing or misunderstanding back, to then say, hey, let's look at it from a different angle. And you guys are, I've done nothing compared to what you've done. You guys have the princes in your hands. This is crazy. And they began to listen and said, okay, okay, we're still kind of offended and you can pick apart the Ephraimites all you want. I foresee in them a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, a little bit of criticism because they weren't part of the original group. You could also label this pride. They're bigger than Gideon was, and they weren't included in this, and that's their sin. And each and every one of us has a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, a little bit of pride, a little bit of criticism in each one of us, but Gideon is able to dispel this. And I'll tell you what, I've been in the ministry long enough where I've said things where I wish I wouldn't have said, and I've heard things I wish I wouldn't have heard, but I want to grow to be a better leader. Don't you want to grow to be a better leader like Jesus? Another proverb says it this way. It says in Proverbs 17, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. How wise is that? To just stop a quarrel before it gets beyond where it needs to be. And Gideon shows us this and exemplifies this even in light of their pride. And he navigates well through this. We're going to give Gideon one star here. We're going to give the Ephraimites something to learn from and something to lean in here. And maybe the Lord would just inspire you. Say, careful what you say. Careful how you criticize. Careful how you come against those who you don't know all the things going on. Asking questions is okay. Getting insight and discernment. Why did you do this? Why didn't you do it this way? I've been offended, and I've been an offender as well. I've done things that offended other people, and I've been offended by things that were done by other people. And yet when I study Jesus Christ, who is perfect, and I'm not perfect, nor are you, Jesus, when he was on earth for 33 years, offended people and was put on a cross and crucified. And if Jesus, the greatest leader, the greatest shepherd, the greatest friend ever was to draw criticism from people who didn't quite understand him, well, then I should not be surprised myself when people don't understand my heart or your heart or the church's heart. But let's also lean into something about the timing here. Gideon is walking by faith. He's worshiped the Lord. He's received from God the promises of God and the direction of God, and he's now walking in new favor, new courage, new wisdom, new people. All kinds of things are happening for Gideon, and bam, an attack comes his way. How many people here have found this to be true in your own life, that right on the heels of victory comes a vicious attack? You decide to get married, I do, and all of a sudden it gets difficult. You take a new job and it's awesome and all of a sudden the tests begin. 
You join a ministry, you start a life group at your house, you start to go teach Sunday school, you start to show up early and stay late and say yes to everything, and there's victories in your life, but all of a sudden the attacks come. I would just help you and hope, I also am not surprised at the attacks that come, but instead let the Lord use them, listen, to sift my own faith and to help the people around me to grow also as they process the things that God's bringing out of them. Both the Ephraimites and Gideon are growing here in the leadership capacity. Gideon could have led better here. Gideon shows up blowing the horn. You guys go there. You guys go here and go here. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? And I have found myself being a strong leader in this way, getting in trouble, stepping on toes, hurting feelings because I sense and see that the Lord is leading us. But it takes some people some time to get up to speed, does it not? And this is important that we learn these things. I also see the pride in the Ephraimites. All of a sudden, Gideon starts blowing the horn and things start happening. And they're crossing their arms saying, hey, man, who gives you the right to set us free? It's like, well, I don't know if you're answer, asking the right questions here. And they're prideful. And sometimes we look at other ministries or people that start to get blessed by God and his goodness. And we start to be jealous and prideful and critical. All of this needs to be worked out of us. Harry Truman, he said it this way. He said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. That doesn't even matter. Can you imagine that? I don't even care. I'm going to heaven. That church should be blessed. That man should be blessed. That family should be blessed. They should win the lottery. They should get a raise. They should get an increase. I don't, I don't care. And when we find ourselves overly opinionated, we can get stuck when we scrutinize and criticize people and misunderstand them. We learn these great lessons from Gideon, but again, I believe that the responsibility in his court was to turn away wrath with a soft answer, and he did this. This is real hard to teach because Gideon's not going to end perfectly. He's actually going to end poorly, and as we teach through the scriptures, sometimes we do show do so by way of prescription. This is prescribed. This is what we're supposed to do. The Old Testament is not so much prescribed. It's described. It just describes how it went down, and so this is what Gideon did. He had a good moment here, but the story's not over. Let's keep reading and see what happens next. Look at verse 4. It says, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and his 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. I love the imagery here. The Ephraimites push back on him. He's still chasing the Midianites. He's been at battle all night long, and he's exhausted but still in pursuit. How many of you guys can relate with this mentality? God's called you to a marriage, he's called you to a mission, he's called you to a ministry, and you get tired sometimes, but you're still in pursuit. You haven't given up. If you got a pulse, you got a purpose. You might have days where you can't see beyond that moment. You might have moments where you can't see beyond that second. You might have times where you want to throw in the towel, and Gideon is exhausted but still in pursuit. This happens, and I'll say it this way, don't be surprised when you become weary in well-doing. Don't be surprised. But when you do grow weary in well-doing, what do you do? How do you find yourself refilling? Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, then he came to the men of Sukkoth, and he says, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The princes of Midian are dead. He's going after the kings now. And he goes to the men of Sukkoth, and he says, guys, can we just get some bread? We're super hungry. Stop right there, eyes up here. The guys of Sukkoth don't want to share their Pop-Tarts today. It's not going to go well for them. But at least Gideon knows what to ask for. And I can't help but see this biblical picture of bread. Bread speaking of God's spirit. Bread speaking of God's body. Bread speaking of God's word. And when you're exhausted and in pursuit of the enemy, 
And when you're finding yourself overwhelmed, it is so imperative that we lean into the things of God and remember that he's gone before us and he has things for us to do. As a matter of fact, let me share with you a couple of verses. If you're a note taker, just write these down, especially if you're on mission right now and you find yourself prone to fatigue, prone to quitting, prone to wondering what's going on. This Galatians 6, you guys all know this one. I want to read it to you, though. It says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. Don't grow weary in well-doing. If you have an opportunity to do good, do it, especially in the household of faith. We live in a culture right now that says get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Just go, you know, that's how it's going to be. And you've never seen a hearse or an armored car, should I say, following a hearse on the way to the funeral home. God's asked us, keep doing good, keep giving out, keep serving, don't grow weary. Here's another verse I want you guys to consider. It's Hebrews 12, 3. It says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Leave that up there for a minute, Dave. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. Don't be discouraged. It's easy to get down. It's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to get overlooked. It's easy to get criticized. Oh, I'm going to quit. No, don't quit. Instead, look to Jesus, lest you become weary. This is why we take communion every Sunday here at South Beach Church. This is why you should read your scriptures every day. This is why you should spend time receiving from the Lord, lest you too become weary and discouraged in your souls. The last portion of scripture before we move on from this, point, uh, from this text is in Acts 20. I'll be teaching this in September when I head up to the Antioch Christian Training School. And Paul is talking to some elders from Ephesus, and he's joined them on the beach at Miletus, and this is what he says. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What does Paul say? He says, all this stuff that's troubling, I don't even think about it that I can finish my race with joy. I don't count my life worth much. I don't count it as the most important thing so that I may continue to fulfill the ministry that God's put in my path. Now, all this, again, I'm just pulling out of verse four. If you take your attention back to Judges, where it says, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and his 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Now, this is Gideon. This is the guy who was hiding in the wine press like three chapters ago. This is the guy who didn't want anything to do with anything. He required multiple signs and confirmations for the Lord to use him. And now, though, when he's in the race, he's not stopping for anything. And people are criticizing him. People are not believing in him. His men are fading behind him, and yet he keeps going. And I want to be also like Gideon in these strengths. Notice what he said in verse 5. He says, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. I believe that the bread speaks of God's word primarily as far as a picture. And I love how Gideon sees the guys that are following him, says the only way the people who are following me are going to make it is if they're being fed the bread. It reminds me of a good church that feeds people the word of God. And the people that follow me better be reading God's word, and the people that follow you better be feeding on his word, and the people that are leading in this community better be leading people through the word of God. Gideon knows all this. We're seeing it here in this picture. There's a lot going on. Look at verse 6, though. It says, and the leaders of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? 
So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then he went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered the same as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And so he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Stop right there, eyes up here. Evidently, Gideon's coffee wasn't working anymore. A little grouchy, a little hangry. And he goes to the men of Sukkoth, and the men of Penuel is like, hey, can I get some bread? We're on mission. They're like, no, we don't believe in you. We don't believe in what's going on. And they have some issues too. They haven't been in all the planning meetings. They haven't been in all the visions. They haven't been in all the backstory. And Gideon here is asking them to trust him. And we see within their response, they're ridiculing Gideon. We know this from verse 15. Gideon took this personally, which by the way, leaders, moms, dads, pastors, teachers, life, you gotta be real careful to not take the criticism from other people personally. That will take you down a dark path. And this criticism comes up, and I can speak to both sides of the camps here. The men of Penuel, the men of Sukkoth, they've got questions. They don't understand what's going on. And as a matter of fact, they're being asked to risk a lot. The question they ask is, is look, bro, these guys, Zalmunna and this other guy, are they really in your hand? We've been under their oppression for seven years. If you go after them and it doesn't work and we're aliases or we're with you, we're going to get in trouble. That's a big risk. This mission, this ministry, this sacrifice is going to cost us if it doesn't work. Now, let's just be honest. This is going to require some faith. This is going to require some sacrifice. I've often heard, or should I just say just recently at a conference, I heard it put this way, that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Do you have faith? Oh, yeah, I got faith. Is there any risk in your life? Are you doing anything about, well, yeah, I'm pretty, you know, pretty conservative. James says it differently. James says, if you have faith, show me your faith by your works. Now, again, I could teach on both sides of this. I could defend the men of Penuel and, and Sukkoth and say, well, they needed a little bit of tutorial. They didn't watch the YouTube video. They didn't see the trailer. They don't know what's going on. But essentially what they're saying is, is we don't want any part of it. We're not going to take that risk. And when, when Gideon responds, he responds with faith and confidence. And he says this to both camps. He says, when I return. See, he knew he was going to win. God had already put that in his heart. When I return, I'm going to return and I'm going to take the briars and the prickleberries and I'm going to discipline you, he said to the men of Sukkoth and to the men of Penuel, he's going to take down their tower. Now, I would read this at face value and say, Gideon, I think you need a nap. I think you need a counselor. You need to go and kind of, you know, have somebody else talk for you. You're getting a little bit harsh here. But we know for a fact that these guys were not willing to participate in what God was doing. Now, let me just go ahead and make sure you see the distinction here because he spoke very well to the men of Ephraim, but then he was very harsh with the men of Penuel and Sukkoth. There are two different sins being committed here in, in my own estimation. The first sin in Ephraim was the sin of pride. They were just prideful. Why didn't you tell us? We wanted to be a part of it. We're Ephraim. You're Manasseh. This doesn't make any sense. And Gideon's like, whoa, 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 just chill out. You got the heads. You're good. We're all right. You see? Okay, okay. And, and their anger was abated, which literally means to be pushed back but not dealt with. And their pride was subdued in that way. But the sin that we're dealing with with Sukkoth and with Penuel isn't pride. Listen, it's a deeper sin. It's a more gross sin. It's the sin of rebellion against what God is doing. Not just pride. Because you see, Ephraim actually did something. Ephraim heard the sound, they ran after, they cut some heads off, they did it. They were part of it. They weren't as much of a part as they wanted to be. They were offended, they thought they should have more. They still were participatory though. These guys, Sukkoth and Penuel, we don't want to help at all. We're not doing it. And it's the sin of rebellion. It's the sin of saying no to the Lord. See, the men of Ephraim, they actually did it, but they just did it with a bad attitude. 
We do that all the time. But these guys down here, it's a little more harsh, and I have to be real careful how I teach this again in some of the pictures that are introduced to us here. Because Gideon, as a type of Jesus, as a picture of the Savior, says, look, when I come back victorious, I'm going to come back and there's going to be judgment with me. If you don't get with me, you're going to get left behind from me. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, hey, anybody and everybody who wants to be part of the kingdom, I'm inviting you to come with me. But it's going to take some risk. It's going to take some faith. And you might say, well, I don't really want to do that. And you have a choice every single day. And Gideon would say, I'm coming back with the victory in my hand, but also judgment in the other hand for those who do not go with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 actually talks about the Bema seat judgment, that when the Lord does return, he's going to reward every single man and every single woman who heard the call of Jesus to get into the ministry, to get into the mission, to serve in their neighborhood, to serve in their church. And every single person said, I want to serve. I want to give my life to that. Those men and women will be rewarded richly, the Bible says. But the ones who said no to God's invitation, to God's call, to God's gift to come to him will not be included in that particular judgment and it won't go well with them. Look at verse 10. It says, now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkar and their armies with them, about 15,000. And all who left of the army of the people from the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Gideon is walking in success. The men of of Midian are falling left and right, and there's only 15,000 left of them. Look what it says. Then Gideon went up, verse 11, by the road of those who dwell in the tents of the east, Noba and Jogba, and he attacked the army while the camp was felt secure. Stop right there. Eyes up here. Again, this is Gideon. Fearful Gideon. Hiding Gideon. Not available Gideon. And yet when the Lord touched him, when the Lord broke him down and then built him back up, Gideon continues to rise up, continues to be courageous. And can I just remind every single one of you who've seen the Lord do anything in your life whatsoever, he's not done. He hasn't brought you this far just to bring you this far. He wants you to continue to rise up in courage, continue to rise up in obedience, to continue to rise up in persistence. Matter of fact, look at verse 12. It says, when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and he betook the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he routed the whole army Gideon mighty man of valor because God saw within Gideon the potentiality of Christ the potentiality of God that through God we can do all things look what happens now as we continue to see this story develop verse 13 then Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle from the ascent of Herez and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and he interrogated him and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and his elders 77 men And then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, here are Zeba and Zalmunna about whom you ridiculed me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give you bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and he taught the men of Sukkoth. Stop right there, eyes up here. What in the world? Have you guys read ahead and seen this? I've been reading this ahead for weeks going, how am I going to teach this? Gideon's losing his mind a little bit here. Gideon comes back now and he says, do you remember the kings of Zalmunna and Ziba? How you guys mocked me and said, are there heads in your hands right now? Are you able to do this? Well, I've got them right here just as God showed me. But before he got there, he found a young man from Sukkoth walking around and he grabbed the man from Sukkoth and said, I need to know everybody in charge in Sukkoth. And he got 77 names. Gideon is not messing around. 
And he gets the names from this young man and he goes to the town square and he calls for the 77 elders that wouldn't back the ministry of God. And it says here that he teaches them a lesson. He disciplines them. Now, commentators are divided on what he really did. Did he whip them with these briar bushes? Did he hurt them physically? It's what it says he did. He embarrassed them. He taught them this lesson in this way. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, Gideon, that's a little harsh. I don't know the culture. I wasn't there. But these guys were indeed walking in rebellion against God and apart from God. And they weren't willing to help with what God was doing. And Gideon got their names. And I would just say, if you fast forward to the New Testament, the Bible says that there are two books recorded of names. There are names that are for God and names that are against God. There's two records. Nobody is not in one of those books. Everybody is in one of those books. The names are recorded. And Jesus says, when I come back, I'm going to open up the books. And the books will be there. And if your name is in the book of life, if you've been forgiven, if you've accepted me as your Savior, if you've joined the mission, if you've received my grace, if you're walking in forgiveness, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you've said no to God, if you've decided to stay rebellious and in your sins, and I don't know if I want to participate in this way, your name is going to be recorded. It's all recorded. And this message isn't fun for us. We want to just think that everyone's going to get along and move forward. But we see here a type and a picture, I believe, of God and his righteousness and his justice. Look at verse 16. It says, he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars and with them taught the men of Sukkoth. And then he tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. I've got written here. Is that harsh? Sounds harsh. But without the participation of these men helping to liberate the rest of the people, there would be more bloodshed. There already was bloodshed. Look at verse 18. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, these are the bad guys, what kind of men were you or were they who you killed at Tabor? Or Tavor. And so they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one assembled, resembled the son of a king. He's now interrogating these bad guys and the ones he killed. And he said to them in verse 19, they were my brothers and the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jeshur, his firstborn son, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For as Gideon, for as a man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Stop right there, eyes up here. Wow, this is not a family photo selfie day. He's interrogating Zeba and Zalmunna, and he asks them, what were the guys like before you killed them? And they said, they were just like you, sons of kings. This was very personal for Gideon. His family had been killed by the Midianites. And so now at this point, culture tells us that in those days, if you were killed by a, a woman, or if you were killed by a young person, or if you were killed by a peasant, it was a dishonorable thing. And so in order to make fun of these kings, he said, hey, son, his own son, go kill these kings. These kings who ruled over us for seven years are now going to be killed by a youth. And evidently, that youth was a youth unable to do this. And then they made fun of Gideon and said, why don't you do it yourself if you're such a tough guy? And so Gideon bit on that and cut their heads off and killed him in this way while his son stood by thinking, I want to be in a different family, you know. Why is my dad like that, you know. This is crazy, right? This is crazy. 
And yet there's so many illustrations we could pull from this as Gideon stood up and took out the sin in the camp in front of his son and set the example. His son was too young. It wasn't for him to do. It was for the dad to lead in this way. And you could say, good job, Gideon, in doing this. And maybe the run-up could have been a little smoother and you know, all the rest. And Ziba and Zalmunna are bad guys confessing their sin. We killed everybody. They were just like you, and we'd kill them again if we could. And they die in this fashion. And it's grotesque, and it's chaotic, and it's crazy. All of this, by the way, is the fruit of sin and rebellion, godlessness, worldliness, and carnality. And it's just the way it was 4,000 years ago. And it's the same way it is in our lives when we say no to the Lord and yes to our flesh. Guys, I want to, in context, finish the chapter. So I'm going to keep reading. I've been hustling a little bit today. It says, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Both you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Midian said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Stop right there, eyes up here. Man, this is a good response from Gideon, isn't it? He's in a position of prominence and power, success and victory. And the children of Israel show us a weakness in their own armor where they say, we want a king. This is the first ask of a king. Eventually, they'll get King Saul given to them, but they want to be like the rest of the people, ruled as a king in this way. But Gideon says, man, I'm not going to rule over you. My sons aren't going to rule over you. The Lord rules over you. That's a good answer from Gideon, isn't it? He knows his place, at least in his mouth. At least he knows what, how to say the right thing. It was the right thing to say, but let's just keep reading. I want you guys to see this. It says, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make, verse 24, a request of you, <laughs> that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them, bro. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that, were, that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, purple robes, which were on the kings of the Midianites, and beside the chains that were around their camels' necks. Do you not want to see a camel wearing a gold chain? Isn't that the coolest thing? I just, I just think these camels were so cool. Anyways, he got all of this stuff and it weighed the amount that was listed. That would be around 50 pounds on a conservative guess, 50 pounds of gold, which is right around one million worth of gold. And Gideon says, hey, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord ruled over you. But now you got me thinking, I'm just thinking maybe I should get a really good payout for what happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, y'all picked up some stuff following me and in the plunder. Maybe we just take a quick little offering here. You guys give me some earrings and some other stuff, some Vikings hoodies because they were purple, all these things, you know. And and, and they're like, let's do it. And all of a sudden we see Gideon kind of going down a slippery slope where he knows how to say the right thing. Guys, I'm not going to be a ruler, but I do want to enlarge my, my, my tent. I do want to take care of myself. And I remember years and years ago, I felt called to the ministry. And I was meeting with one of my pastors in Ashland about 24, 25 years ago. And I said, hey, I, I feel called to the ministry. And, and, and I, I, I just, what do I do? And he said this, this. This guy said, listen to as many sermons as you can. Listen to the Bible being taught. I was like, I'm doing that every day. I listen to three or four sermons a day. And he said, start teaching the Bible. Just start teaching the Bible. Start te-. I said, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. And he said, be careful of the three Gs. I said, whoa, what are the three Gs? And he gave me this piece of advice. He said, be careful of girls gold and glory and what we see here in Gideon's last at bat is he falls prey to girls gold and glory and God had used him and elevated to a place of prominence 
And yet within this, God gave us this as a picture. Because Gideon is not our hero. Gideon is not our savior. Gideon is an example that shows within us our own weaknesses and chinks so that all attention and all glory goes to Jesus Christ. Let's finish his story. And I want you guys to see this. It says then, 20, verse 27, Gideon made this gold into an ephod. And he set it up in the city of Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Stop right there, eyes up here. An ephod would have been something that the priests would wear. It would be like a little mini hoodie, like a sleeveless little shirt you would wear. It would have the 12 tribes on it, and it would wear, and they would pray, and God would give them answers and direction. It was kind of a big deal in the children of Israel, but to make a $1.25 million golden ephod wasn't to wear, but was instead to put on to display in his house so that way nobody in the future forgot how they'd gotten their freedom or who Gideon was. It's kind of like a relic or like an autographed signed picture of something. Like, never forget that I was here. And Gideon's like, I just want to make a golden ephod. Huh? Feels like the right thing to do. And inevitably, he was drawing, maybe even unintentionally, attention to himself. And so we see him falling into this sin of glory and gold. Let's finish the story. It says, then Jerubbabel, verse 29, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, went and he dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were of his offspring, for he had many wives. Whoops, big goof. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. Now Gideon was the son of Joash. He died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, and Oprah the Abizarite. And so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all the Midianites on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good for, that he had done for Israel. Stop right there, eyes up here, and I'm going to have Paul come up and he's going to lead us in a closing song, and we're going to let the Lord search our hearts. Interesting, Gideon goes back to his house and he has 70 kids. It doesn't say how many wives he had, but he had a bunch of them. The Bible does never bless or condone polygamy. It actually speaks uh, bad about it. It forbids it in the New Testament. It regulates it at best in the Old Testament. It's not the way that God intended it to be. Not only did he have a bunch of wives, but he also had a concubine. And from that concubine, he had a son named Abimelech. This is going to set up the story for the next chapter, where Abimelech, the fruit of his sin, the fruit of his, his weakness, the fruit of his inability to stay the course is going to come back and it's going to haunt him. And here's, I believe, the moral of the story. There's so many things we could have slowed down on and extracted and considered, and maybe we'll do that next week. Maybe you'll do that in your life groups as you consider all of the leadership points and all of the things that Gideon was working through. But the Bible says that the things of the Old Testament were written for our learning, for our hope, for our admonition, for our direction, and for our comfort and peace that we might know exactly what God wants from us and all things point to the Lord and all things direct us into worshiping him, not ourselves. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life right now or what the struggles is. Maybe it's some gold. Maybe it's some glory. Maybe there's some girls. Maybe there's some things out there, some things, whatever the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the Lord reaches down to each and every one of us and says, hey, there's all kinds of minds out there. There's all kinds of traps. There's all kinds of distractions. You're going to get weary. Don't get weary. Feast on the things of God. Desire the bread, the pure milk of the word of God that you might grow hereby. 
This is the challenge. This is the need. And the devil wants to divide us and have us go down so many different paths. And the Lord makes it so simple. Stay humble. Cry out to me. Stay in my presence. Be like Jesus, not like Gideon. Gideon's a great guy. He makes the hall of faith by, by grace and through mercy. But the real Savior, the real one that we follow is Jesus Christ, who we've given our life to and who gave his life to us first. And so would you just bow your heads and pray with me as we consider Jesus and give our lives over to him at the end of the service right now. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who, unlike Gideon, was perfect who unlike Gideon, Lord, didn't retaliate in the way that Gideon did. He didn't lose his school. He didn't lose his mind. Jesus Christ instead washed the feet of his betrayers. He washed the feet of his deniers. He washed the feet of the people, Lord, that were near to him. And I pray in Jesus' name that we would do the same. We wouldn't grow weary. That even right now, each and every one of us at South Beach Church here this morning, every single one of us would say yes and amen to Jesus. Lead us as our shepherd. As a matter of fact, if you're here this morning, you say, I just want to be led by Jesus. I just want to be near to him. I want to do what he says. I want to go where he goes. I want to be like him. I want to give my life to Jesus to a greater degree today. Would you just raise up your hand right now in Jesus' name by way of submission? Say, yes, Lord. Take my life as it is. Save me, Lord. Save me from myself and make me more, Lord, about you, more like you. Forgive me of my sins. Help me not, Lord, to grow weary in well-doing, but instead, Lord, to be encouraged daily. I'm going to ask everyone to stand up at this time, too. We're going to sing this song. And as we sing this chorus, as we worship the Lord, if you need prayer, would you just come forward down the aisle right now to the altar? Just come down by way of response. Say, yeah, Lord, I need you to touch me and to fill me. I'm crying out to you, Lord, to do a deeper work in my heart. I'm going to come down. I'm going to pray for people. If that's you, come right now. Let's sing to the Lord and trust him to lead us into what he wants to do in our lives.